are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. I hope you're all beginning to understand the pulse of the book of Galatians, that Paul, he's doing his absolute best to ensure that the gospel is preached and the gospel remains untainted by the lies of the so-called experts. When the people... When people think of the book of Galatians, they typically think of one particular verse. Can you guess? Right? The 522. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. But as you're, guys, as you're all trekking with me in this series, I, I hope that you guys realize there's a lot more <laughs> to it than that. Now, if you speak to other kind of denominations, other groups of Christians, perhaps those from you know, other uh, mainline denominations, you'll realize that there's you'll see kind of a different understanding of Scripture unfolding before you. You might hear a lot of kind of even emphasis on Israel in particular, um, on the Jews. I mean, with the title as the chosen, uh, God's chosen people, it certainly makes the case a bit more interesting. So there's a lot of people from good churches, um, but they tend to have too much of an emphasis or focus on Israel because they believe that Israel was and still is the center of God's plan. Now, in the Old Testament, that was completely true. God used Abraham to make his people, and God certainly gave the descendants of Abraham a privileged position in this world. At the same time, the Jews have suffered a lot then, just as they have, just as they have suffered now in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, regardless of one's view of biblical interpretation, I think you and I, if we think about it, it's undeniable that God has truly blessed the world in amazing ways through these people, through the Jews. Like, for instance, apparently since 1901, Nobel Prize was given to 855 people since then, and at least 193, or 22% of them, have been Jewish. A population that's less than 1% in this world, and yet 193 of them, 22% of them, received the Nobel Prize. What about financially? In almost every single major bank, there's a person in leadership, CEO, CFO, president, of, who, is, who has Jewish descent. What about the Hollywood Corporation or major network stations, the news media? They have men and women of Jewish descent as CEOs and presidents of those organizations. And as much as we see the Jewish people blessed, at least in terms of money, material, power, and influence, the big promise God made to Abraham was not primarily about the Jews and how blessed their lives will be, okay? But God's blessing made through Abraham was about Jesus and how we'll be blessed because of him, right? So that's the greatest blessing, is that we are blessed to know Jesus. Verse 16 points out that it was the offspring of Abraham, not offsprings, singular, not plural, and if there's any confusion there, it goes on to say, and to your offspring, who is Christ? So it makes it pretty clear. We're not talking about a group of people. We're not talking about God's chosen people. We're not talking about the Jews or the Israelites. We're talking about singular, Jesus Christ. In other words, what God is doing in the world and what God is intending on doing in the future, it does not focus completely on the physical descendants of Abraham, but solely, completely, ultimately on Jesus Christ and those who belong to him. Do you belong to Jesus? Then God's blessing is with you. You see that? The spiritual blessing, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. 
Now, I wonder what kind of promises you think God has for you, meaning what do you expect or perhaps even demand from God right now in your life? I know you have a couple things. God, this is, what I'm, this is what I'm striving for. This is what I want from you, Lord. Because when we think of God's blessing, let's, think, let's, let's be honest. We think of health, wealth, and prosperity, don't we? When we think of blessings, we think of God, let me get that new crib. God, let me get that new car. God, let me get that new kind of that new wardrobe. God, let me get that new girl, that new guy. Let me get that new job. Let me get that new extra zero at the end of my paycheck. These are things that we think are the blessings of God. That if I do this for you, if I'm a good person for you, if I'm courteous and if I'm right and I'm just truthful and obedient, then God, somehow, for some reason, now you owe me that. That you owe me all these things that, that I think are a true blessing to me. Like promise thing. It's a huge thing. In fact, if God didn't have any promises for us, then, then, then I'll admit, it'd be pretty difficult to trust him. Or even verify what he says is true. But in order for us all to understand God's promises to man, we need to first understand this one great central truth. And that is God's promises hinges on Jesus Christ. That's our first point. It's Jesus Christ. God's promises, they're not just blanket promises of, hey, I'll promise that you can make a lot of money if you, if you do this or do that. Or I'll promise that you can get into that, that grad school or to that, or to that undergraduate uh, college or, to, or get that job of your dreams. God's promise isn't contingent, okay? It does not depend on our definition of what we think is happiness or success. It's not. God's promises are all centered, not on you, but on Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, God's promises are yes in Christ. Ephesians 1.10, the mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure is to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. Colossians 2, in Christ are, all, are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Again in Colossians 2, a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. God's promises are centered on Christ. So don't get upset when God doesn't answer your prayer because you really wanted marriage more than you wanted a marriage with Christ. Or you really wanted money more than you wanted Christ, or that you really wanted success more than you want Jesus because God never promised you anything apart from Christ. He didn't. So when your marriage is falling apart, don't look up to God and say, but you promised me a good marriage. No, look up to him and say, at least I got my marriage with you, Christ. When you're not physically doing well, you're hurting, you're in pain, and you're at the hospital with chronic illness, don't strike your fist up into the heavens and say, God, but you promised me healing. Instead, lower your head in humility and say, thank you, Lord, that in Christ, if I'm not healed today, at least my body will be lifted up and glorified when I see you face to face. When you're not financially doing well, even though you're working hard, you're doing your best, but you're still struggling, instead of angrily asking God to provide and pour out his blessing upon you, instead look to Jesus because God may not promise you financial security, but through Christ he'll guarantee eternal security. This is faith, I'll tell you. 
knowing that Jesus is better than anything you believe you need right now. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is the blessing that God has promised us. Now, can God bless you financially? Can he bless you in your health, in your careers, in your relationships, in everything? Absolutely. And he does so, but he, not because it's owed to us, but because of his grace. And how do we know he blesses us in the different areas of our lives? Well, if you do a study of Jesus' name and all the things that are ascribed to him, there are over 700 names of Christ that are used all throughout Scripture to identify him, and all these names indicate some, something, some aspect of his personhood or of his work. This means that beyond all those things, there's nothing left because Jesus does it all. In other words, every part of who he is impacts every part of who we are. So when we say we receive the blessing of Christ, Know that it impacts every aspect, facet of who you are. Socially, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, physically, every aspect. Jesus is the ultimate blessing. That's just a means to the blessing. He is the blessing. That means money isn't the final blessing. It's the means to worship the greatest blessing. Your master's degree, law degree, undergrad degree, medical degree, your PhD is not the final blessing as much as you're striving hard and working towards that. It is the means to worship the greatest blessing. All those years that you spend in education is to glorify the greatest blessing that you've already received in Christ Jesus. That means your rock-hard abs, your sculpted body of fitness and health is not the ultimate blessing. Instead, it's the means to worship the greatest blessing. No amen here? <laughs> That's why my wife asked me, asked me to work out. And I'm like, well, is it, is it because you want me to look like those Abercrombie models? And she's like, no, so that you can stick around longer and serve God more. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> How ignorant of me. And yet somehow we've ignorantly reversed the entire thing. And instead we use Jesus to be our means to get the other things. Don't we? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you right now, the good thing about seminary is that if you attend a good school, you'll have good instructors. And you can judge how good they are based on one thing from what I've gathered. Is that if they drill into you that the education that you're receiving is ultimately for the sake of God's kingdom and his glory. In secular schools, you don't really get that, which is why we meet every Sunday so that you might at least hear it from the pulpit, and here it is again. Everything in your life, marriage, your wealth, your health, your ambitions, your dreams, your possessions, your everything will never be what you're ultimately looking for, what you're ultimately working for, what you're ultimately striving for, because all those things in your life will pass. Those things in your life will fail. Those things will leave you. Those things will forsake you, but Jesus will not and he cannot. Jesus himself is the greatest blessing God promised us, and like he promised us in Deuteronomy 31, he will never leave us nor forsake us. So at the end of the day, when you're tired and you're drained, go to Jesus. 
When you're angry and bitter, go to Jesus. When you're confused and you're stressed out, go to Jesus. When you're feeling empty and alone, go to Jesus. When you need peace from your distractions and frustrations, go to Jesus. When what you thought was your everything has failed you, go to your real everything. Go to your greatest blessing, Jesus. And you will be so satisfied in him. My second point is that salvation depends only on God's promise. Have you ever made a promise to someone? Have you ever broken a promise? I have. Keeping promises, it seems today, it's not that important anymore. One day a dad, he asked his son, Hey, son, didn't we agree that if you didn't get straight A's, that uh, that you would try your best to get straight A's? Son says, yes. And we said that if you didn't get straight A's, son, then then you'd get spanking from me. Isn't that right? Son says, yeah, dad, you're right. Uh, I did not follow our agreement. But I was wondering, do you have to follow the agreement either? Meaning this. Now, the promises of God are different from the promises that we make. We make promises to benefit ourselves in many ways, and we break it all the time, don't we? We mess it up all the time. There's hardly a truth sometimes in what we say. We, we make these promises to make our lives a little bit better for ourselves. We do, we, we do it to make ourselves look better, to perhaps negotiate a deal or whatever. And when we don't deliver that promise, it's typically because maybe we forgot, or maybe it's become an inconvenience to us. But God's promises, his ancient promises that may take even generations to come to fruition, this is different from what he does and what we, what we do. Because his promises are always for his glory and for our good. His promises will always bring goodness. God promised Abraham a blessing. The promise of grace. That's Jesus. Now the same God who made the promise also made the law. Now here's the problem, okay? This is what Paul's trying, attempting to kind of clear up in, this, in these few verses. Some people think that the law was God's promise too. So if you do this or if you don't do that, then you'll receive God's blessing. But we know from this passage is that God's law and God's promises are two very different things because God's promise cannot come from God's law. So let me, let me help clear that up for you a bit. Promise and the law are two opposite things. God, he dealt with Abraham and he dealt with Moses differently. To Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. To Moses, God says, you shall, you shall not, you shall, you shall not. The promise of God sets forth kind of this religion of God, which is God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law, it sets forth like this religion of man, meaning man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility. And so here we have the promise of God. And that promise of God stands for the grace of God. And guess what you have to do? You just have to believe it. But the law, it stands for the work of men. And what do you have to do? You have to obey it. God's dealing with Abraham was in the category of promise, grace, and faith. God's dealing with Moses was in the category of law, commandments, and work. So let me break this down and give you an example. If I said, here I have a $100 bill, 
Just reach out your hand and take it. Now all you have to do to receive the $100 from my hand is to believe in the offer. If you believe in my promise, then you receive the money. If you don't believe me because you think I'm up to no good, that I'm about to trick you or something, then you walk away regardless, empty-handed. That's how a promise works. I have $100 and I promise to give it to you. So therefore, will you believe me? But if I say, I have $100 for you, but you need to do a couple of things for me, a couple errands, a couple of tasks. If you want the money, you got to do this or you got to complete that. That's what we call a labor contract, don't we? You work, then you get the payment or the reward. That's how the law works. But what if I said, I want to make you a promise. Here's $100. It's yours for the taking. But as you're reaching out to take it, I say, oh, wait, hold on. You also have to do some errands and some tasks for me first. You would say, well, hold on. You, you just broke your promise when you added in those works. That's not a promise. That's a job. Well, that's precisely what the false teachers were doing in Galatia. They said to the people, hey, 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 we know the gospel message. And they're like, okay, I want to hear it. And then he, they say, God's promise of salvation is in Jesus alone. Do you want it? They go, yes, I want it. As they're reaching out, they go, but to receive salvation, you also have to keep the law. So that's why Paul's saying here, hey, that's not how a promise works. God gave a promise to Abraham, and he didn't change the promise into a job when he gave the law to Moses. Now here's the thing. A promise covenant depends on the promiser. It has nothing to do with the promisee. All you have to do is believe it. But in the law covenant, it has to do with the promisee and whether you do what you're asked. Now, why am I saying all this? What's the point Paul is trying to get here? The point is this, that you must understand the difference between the promise of God and the law of God and how you can't have both because you can't obey both. You need to rely on God's grace, on his promise. And I want to give you an example. In Genesis chapter 15, we see how covenants were made. Follow me here. There was a ceremony, get this, involved, which explains the biblical expression of to cut a covenant. So here's the procedure, okay? The people who are trying to make this pact, this promise, this covenant, they would bring sacrifice or sacrificial animals for the ceremony. Then they would get these animals, whether they're cows or goats or whatever, and they would cut them in half. Split them in half, right down the middle, and then place the half carcasses on either side of that path, right down the middle. Then the two parties making the covenant would walk down between the half split, dismembered animals. And as they did this, they would then pledge their faithfulness to whatever terms that they had agreed on. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, this is disgusting. This is gory. I want you guys to think about for a second the symbolism that this represents. It's powerful. The two parties to the covenant were saying to each other this as they're walking through the split in half carcasses. They were saying, may I be like these dismembered, killed, disgusting, broken animals if I fail to keep my word to you. That's what they're saying. That's serious, isn't it? May I be cursed and split and killed in agony, in complete just 
whatever, if I were to ever break this promise, this covenant I made with you. That's straight up signing in blood. That's how covenants were made. That's how serious a promise was made or was. I bet if people understood that today, they would be less prone to making promises, right? More romantic movies would end with the guy saying, like, I think you're all right. But let's just see where this relationship goes. More action films would stop with the hero saying, I'll promise to come back after I defeat this or win this battle for you and stay with you forever. Instead, they'll say, look, look I'll try. Okay, no promises, but you got to move on if I don't come back in a few months. <laughs> so in Genesis 15, Abraham, he's remembering this promise that the Lord had made with him. This promise to make his descendants great through him. But Abraham, he had this concern, you see, because he was kind of old. He was really old. He was past his prime. He was past his prime's prime. And so he had these concerns. Actually, he had these doubts about God's promise. And maybe right now in your life, you also have these concerns and these doubts. Because you're reading scripture, you're trusting in God, you're walking in faith with Christ Jesus, but you're going through a hard time in your life, and you're beginning to doubt the promises that God had made. But my situation looks like this. How could I possibly rise from this occasion? Because my, 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 my life looks like this. My health looks like this. God, how could I possibly be better than what's going on in my life right now? Like Abraham, he had concerns. He was doubting the faithfulness, the promises, the covenant of God. So God, he said, you know what? Let's make a pact here. God, he told him to get animals and to set up this covenant ritual. So Abraham, he brought a heifer. He got a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Abraham, he, he, he knows the ritual. He knows the routine. So he goes ahead and he kills the animals. He sacrifices them. He divides the animals in half, and he placed the parts opposite each other. You see, God was about to make a covenant with Abraham, but then something weird happened, you see. When God said, do this, and Abraham does it, and Abraham knows that there's this pact being made between he and God, God all of a sudden just kind of disappears. He didn't return right away. And so Abraham is there probably just standing between a bunch of bloody, half-split, dismembered animals. And he's just kind of like, where are you? He was waiting. And what happened? Birds of prey started coming down, swooping down to feed on the carcasses. And as that was happening, Abraham, wanting to ensure that the sacrifice remained undefiled, untainted, he began to shoo them away and running around trying to remove all the birds and from trying to attack the carcasses and the sacrifice. But as the text says, finally the sun was setting. And God, he, he caused a deep sleep and darkness to come over Abraham. I guess Abraham was exhausted. He was just out, decommissioned. I mean, what a clear picture of a man's futility to earn God's favor. Constantly chasing, constantly trying to keep things right, to do things true. But here's the thing. A strange thing happened at that moment. God showed up. And he appeared in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Does that image sound familiar? a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. That's the way he would later lead his people in the wilderness, remember? 
the pillar of cloud and fire. So God all alone, without Abraham, God alone walked down. God alone passed down the path between these sacrifice split animals. God did it. God alone. Do you understand what happened here? God made a covenant with Abraham. God established a new relationship with Abraham, but only God took the oath. Only God took that promise. The promises of God, the covenant hinged, rested on God's faithfulness alone. Not you, not me, not what you have to say, not in what I have to say, not in who you are, but in everything and who he is. The promises of God through his son Jesus is guaranteed only because God himself guarantees it. That's why I can wake up every single day of my life, no matter how difficult life is, and say, God, you are God. I trust you. You are faithful to the end. You are good no matter how bad life gets. This is why the greatest blessing of our lives and of our eternity is and will forever be Jesus because unlike anything else in this world, Jesus is the only certainty we have and the assurance of our salvation is certain because it does not rest on our ability to hang on it or to walk through it or to chase away the birds. We cannot earn it. It's futile despite our best efforts. Salvation is pure grace. It is pure God. God took the oath to save us. That covenant that was made between God and Abraham, it may have been figurative, but was symbolic, guess what, became a reality for you and me. In that the ever-living God took on human nature, he tasted death in the place of you and me. We're promise keepers, promise breakers. And on that cross, the covenant curse fell completely onto Jesus so we who are guilty can place our trust in him through his grace, by his grace, we might experience the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore our punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and that we might be his people. On the cross, God, he carried to the fullest extent what he had promised in his covenant with Abraham. God walked between the split sacrifice and how was that promise kept? By the pouring of the blood of his one and only son to be the guarantee of his promise of the gospel. That's why more than anything else in this world or what this world pretends like they could offer, Christ Jesus is the greatest blessing any person could ever receive. Because to understand what it took for us to get him, you now know there's nothing to fear in life. That there's nothing more important in life. Not sickness, poverty, money, wealth, success, judgment, persecution, all everything else in life is temporary. But the gift of God through his son Jesus is eternal and is certain. If it rested on you and had everything to do with you and what you could do for yourself, and how you're doing, and you have to walk through the split sacrifice, then here's the thing, you would never know for sure if you're saved. But when you look away from yourself, 
and you rest solely upon Jesus and know it was God who made the promise, then you can have absolute peace. Absolute peace and absolute assurance of your salvation. And know that though you may not have much in this world right now, which a lot of you I know are struggling with, having a hard time. I don't have much, Pastor David. God, I don't have much. I'm struggling with my health. I'm struggling with my finances. I'm struggling with my academics. I'm struggling with my, with my relationships. I'm struggling. There are so many difficult things. And right now you think the only hope for your life is to get those things remedied, but it is not. You think the only thing that can save you, your only life saver is to get that degree or to get that relationship reconciled to do this, it is not. In Christ, you already have the greatest blessing you could ever want. Jesus is God's greatest gift to you. Jesus is that guarantee. And so... I want all of us to come before the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, to celebrate that. To think about that and to worship Him. So let's bow our heads and as we go into this time of communion, would you please reflect on what you've heard? Would you be sensitive to the way that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you? Maybe right now you're still fighting and resisting God. I have to do this. I need to do this. I can only do this. You're not the one walking through that sacrifice. Let the Lord carry you. Let the Lord carry you. The burdens that you're holding on to, that resentment, that anger, or maybe the, the burden of ambition and desire, all those things, or the feeling that you need to rise to your parents' expectations, or all these kind of things, give it to the Lord. You completing and successfully fulfilling any of those things, that, those tasks in your life, it will not do what only God can do. So let's take a few minutes and just pray as you hear from the Lord. Let's approach him with deep humility and saying, Lord, I, I don't have it together. I can't do it. I've tried. And let the Lord walk between in your place. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.